Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with my friend and comrade, Derek Davison. And we're excited to welcome to the podcast today, Dawn Marie Paley. Dawn is the editor of Ojala, and she is uh, very embedded in feminist movements in Mexico. And we've invited her to talk today about feminism in Mexico. So Dawn, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, So why don't we just start with a basic question? How are you doing this fine day? Well, you know, I actually had a pretty nice morning, just, you know, my cup of tea, regular stuff. And then right before I came on the podcast, I got a message that um, Cecilia Flores has disappeared. And uh, Cecilia Flores is uh, a woman who uh, two of her sons are disappeared in the state of Sonora. And she is like the backbone of a, of a search collective of mothers who search for the disappeared in Sonora. And she was disappeared. Um, I, they just put out the bulletin. She was disappeared yesterday while on a search and she was last seen getting into a vehicle belonging to the state police who are supposedly her security escort. So it just kind of starts off the week with like, well, you know, what is, what is going on? What is this? Um, but also, yeah, just how much, how much, how much pain and how much danger uh, there is right now for people who are, who are resisting violence in Mexico and, and so on. So I'm doing okay. It's going to be a long week. I'm sure we're going to be figuring out how to respond to this. You know, the first 24 hours, 72 hours after someone's disappeared are really, really crucial in terms of uh, finding them alive. So I'm sure after this call, I'll hop on with other comrades and see um, how folks are responding to this disappearance. So, I mean, well, thank you so much for keeping this appointment. That, that, that sounds terrible. So, so maybe you could actually talk a little bit about disappearances and, and what is this problem that has, um, I don't know if I want to say plagued Mexico, but has defined Mexican politics for quite a while. What is it? Where did it begin? And, and maybe you could give us some of the contours of this phenomenon, which has resonance in a lot of American pop culture, but I don't think is, is really understood what exactly it is and what's really going on. Yeah, I mean, um, I would say it's probably one of the most high-profile issues right now in Mexico. Um, there's over 112,000 people who've been disappeared, um, and most of those disappearances have taken place uh, since 2006, which is when Felipe Calderón declared the war on drugs. So it's been in this context of uh, militarized prohibition that the vast majority of these disappearances have taken place. There was also, um, you know, famously, and since you're historians, uh, disappearances connected to um, repression of guerrilla movements and rural organizing uh, in the 1960s, 1970s. And there was historic movements that, you know, they're still organizing around those disappearances. But basically this new wave of disappearances started in the last 15 years. And yeah, 112 people. And that's like disappearances that are officially registered by the state. There's a lot more people who've been disappeared, who whose family members have been intimidated or for other reasons haven't actually made a, a formal, you know, police report about the disappearance, but we know of at least 112,000. And, you know, the question of why is always such a hard one, right? Like a lot of it comes down to like, we don't know 
Um, I'm sure you guys heard about the really high-profile case of the four folks who crossed over into Tamaulipas uh, a couple months ago from the U.S., and they were disappeared, and two of them were murdered, and two of them were released and, and returned to the United States. And it's, you know, one thing that people were very relieved in Mexico when they were found, um, but it also generated this discussion around, like, wait a second, so when they're Americans and there's a political pressure, they can be found, right? Whereas with Mexicans who are disappearing and also non-Mexican migrants who are transiting through the country, there is just basically total impunity for disappearance in these cases. Um, and the other thing that you know has happened, especially since 2014, um, when the 43 students from the Ayotinapa Normal School were disappeared, is the formation of search collectives. So groups of family members that disappeared who self-organize, um, self-teach how to search, um, and they go out and search. And right now, I think there's over 160 of these collectives all around Mexico. So the breadth and the depth of this phenomenon of enforced disappearance has also created a really strong social movement. And that's part of what Cecilia Flores was a, was a big part of. She was one of the most visible leaders um, in searching for the disappeared in in Sonora, which is just across the border from from Arizona, right? Could we talk a little bit about the, the quote-unquote drug war? Um, so there's a lot of different perspectives on this, and, and we've talked about it. I don't know if you know Alex Avina or Christy Thornton, but we talked about it a bit with them. But I'd love to get a, a, your perspective, and particularly how it relates to your own work and feminism in Mexico and, and disappearance, because there's a million ways to look at this thing. One, do you even like the term drug war? I know there's been pushback against that recently. Um, so yeah, if you could just talk about that for uh, a bit. So I've got a book called Drug War Capitalism, and I've been working for probably about 10 years. Um, lose track of time sometimes, but um, I've been working for a long time on the so-called war on drugs in Mexico um, and in Drug War Capitalism, which came out uh, in 2014. Um, I sort of make the argument that the war on drugs is actually a really um, convenient and useful manner to organize social control um, and territorial control from spaces of power. And I sort of go back to Plan Colombia, which was launched in 2000, and the Merida Initiative, which was a sort of copy of the Plan Colombia, but for Mexico, and make the argument that the U.S. is not repeating a failed policy on drug war, but that the outcomes of this kind of militarized prohibition are actually extremely convenient um, for capitalism, for the expansion, particularly of transnational capitalism, extractivism, for the control of the working class, in the case of Mexico, the control of migration. Just very quickly, could you give some agents to that notion of capitalism, which is often on the left spoken of in disembodied term, but who are the actual actors here? Because I think that when most people hear of the drug war, they, they think of drug cartels, but uh, as people who follow it know there's an embeddedness between state forces, parastatal forces, the drug cartels, international capital. So who are the literal actors that you would say begin operating in 2006 when Calderon, you know, calls this this drug war? Yeah, I wouldn't say that they began operating in 2006. I would say what the sort of what the oh, absolutely not. Right? <laughs> absolutely, like yeah. what the, the decades and decades. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the, new phase. Yeah, what, what something like um, Plan Colombia or the Merida Initiative does is throw, throw gasoline on the fire, right? All these forces are, are pre-existing, 
Um, but so the way I like to think about this is I don't, I don't really think drug cartels is a useful frame. So I prefer to think of these groups as paramilitary groups because over and over and over again, um, we, uh, we have so little information to go on, but when we get that information, it's telling us that these groups are working hand in hand with agents of the Mexican state, politicians, police, soldiers, etc. The trial of Garcia Luna recently in the United States, you know, he's the highest security officer in Mexico, the head of the public security secretariat, found guilty, of course, on these charges of trafficking, which don't even touch the human rights pieces, the massacres, disappearances, etc. But there is a deep cooperation between different parts of the government and drug cartels. So I don't think drug cartels is, is particularly useful. And then what we see is over and over again, and, and, and this is, you know, really made clear by Colombia and because of specific legal cases in Colombia, is that these types of paramilitary groups are actually very functional to the interests of transnational capital. So in, in, in Colombia, you have cases of like union organizing being squashed by killings by paramilitaries of union organizers. Indigenous people, you know, in the Guajira protecting their land from coal mining, being eliminated by paramilitary groups. Um, folks protesting building in new pipelines, being eliminated by, by paramilitary groups. And the overall discourse is always like, you know, this is, we're fighting drugs, we're fighting drugs, we're fighting drugs. But on the ground, on the micro level, what we're seeing is that there's deep complicities between really powerful fragments of capital, um, large corporations. So the extractive industries is kind of like the easiest target. Um, but for sure, this also connects with labor and the control of workers, especially folks working in the maquila, right? Um, but also folks working in the informal sector, that there is this way that they are controlled or that they are kept in line through violence that in the media is just talked about as being like, you know, this is people fighting over drugs. And I think the other move that, I, that, I, that I'm trying to make with drug war capitalism and I'm talking about it in this frame is that there's a tendency to go... Yeah, the drug war, like the connections to capitalism are like money laundering and arms, right? And drugs. And the argument that I'm trying to make and that a bunch of us are, are working kind of from this frame is, in fact, like your legal mining company may also be benefiting from all of this violence, militarization and paramilitarization in these territories. It's not just a tiny you know, sector of the capitalist system that is making a lot of cash off of prohibition, the militarization of prohibition actually kind of supports the overall functioning of, you know, corporate interests, basically, in Mexico, in Central America, in Colombia, um, in ways that we are hardly ever exposed to. It's really not talked about that often that way in the media. So that's, I guess, part of, part of the work we're trying to do. How, how does it grease the wheels of global capitalism? So I think the most straightforward argument is basically folks are, are really organized in the territories. Mexico is more than half of Mexico's communally owned land. Um, people participate in shared ownership of these territories and protest on a very regular basis against extractive projects, right? Huge mines, in Mexico, it's really mining because the oil sector has has traditionally been controlled by the state. 
And so what we see over and over again is these folks who are organizing, who are holding assemblies, who are using actually legal mechanisms that were established after the Mexican Revolution to control their own land, to make decisions over their own land, are assassinated and disappeared as they're doing this organizing as a way to sort of shut down people's ability to protest. Um, that's a big one. And there's, there's, you know, there's cases that just three months ago, a very high-profile human rights lawyer and an indigenous leader, um, Ricardo Lagunes and Antonio Diaz, were both disappeared right after participating in an assembly that is making a huge amount of progress around indigenous land rights in the face of, of transnational mining companies. But the fact that disappearance and massacre and homicide is so normalized now in Mexico, um, not just against defenders, against the population, and specifically in certain regions, it's even harder for folks to mount a campaign to try to get these folks back alive, to raise a big scandal, to get international attention. You know, I was on a call with you know, people I really respect on Saturday from the U.S. And I said, we should do something about the disappearance of Ricardo Lagunes, this, this lawyer. And the response was, oh, that happens all the time in Mexico. So why is this news, right? And it's like, this is, you know, come on. Like, we, we can't normalize this, but it is it has become really normalized. So it's just, you know, this level of, of social control through coercive violence where if all else fails then the drug war appears in the territories and people are killed and disappeared and displaced from their lands using a discourse that has nothing to do. It's totally depoliticized. It's depoliticizing of any kind of action that would be taken locally. And so what is the government doing? What is the relationship between the federal government, local government, the uh, armed militias? How does that operate? I mean, this is a huge question, right? Mexico is a massive country that is super diverse geographically. But in general, I would say Mexico is basically completely subsumed to the U.S. when it comes to security policy. Um, security policy now also extending to the control of irregular migration through Mexico. Um, you know, since 2019, uh, President López Obrador has agreed to use the National Guard um, which is the army. There is, it is run by the army. It's staffed by soldiers to police migration in Mexico. That was an agreement that he made with Trump that hasn't been reversed uh, since Biden came to office. So this sort of total securitization and use of military force to not only police prohibition, but also to police migration is basically lockstep with what the U.S. is is asking of Mexico or demanding of Mexico. Um, and then in terms of state governments, I mean, we can critique the federal government, um, the army, the National Guard, you know, its apparatus. When you go down to the state level, Mexico has 32 states and Mexico City. It's usually worse, right? So the corruption is usually more obvious, uh, the level of just flagrant impunity is is even worse so it's it's a it's in terms of institutions uh the judicial apparatus in mexico is rotten you know you have i've, I've i'm always working with family members that disappeared interviewing them 
accompanying them. And I'm always hearing over and over again about how what's happening to them when they go and they denounce this huge tragedy that has completely upset their life, right? Their child has been disappeared. They are criminalized by authorities. They are threatened by authorities. So you have the authorities protecting the people who are carrying out these crimes. And then, you know, we also find out now and then about there being overlap, right? Like the fact that Ceci Flores was last seen getting into a state police car does not surprise me because often police and soldiers and Marines are directly involved in the act of of enforced disappearance. In fact, when we say enforced disappearance, what that's supposed to mean is that it was carried out by an agent of the state. Well, Don, I wonder uh, if you could talk a little bit more about the ways that the United States influences this phenomenon and, and maybe a little bit more about migration policy. I know everybody likes to point to Trump as this aberration, but I, I would say he's not. You can maybe speak to that a little better than I can. Um, but also something we've talked about with Alex quite a bit is kind of the reverse side of the drug trade. When, when everybody focuses on the drugs coming into the United States, they don't really talk about the guns that go in the other direction and, and have, uh, you know, arms, a lot of these groups and, and, you know, much more heavily than they used to be. Can you talk a little bit about some of those phenomenons and the, the effect that the U.S. has in general? Sure. I mean, going back in time a little bit, you know, historically, Mexico and the United States as republics were antagonistic, right? In the 19th century, the U.S. invaded multiple times. And it wasn't until around, uh, well, World War II, that there started to be more cooperation between the Mexican army and the U.S. army. And this was, you know, as part of the allies. And there's some very specific brigades that Mexican soldiers and, and Air Force participated in, et cetera. And then after World War II, Mexico's focus in terms of defense really moved from like France. France had been really like the colonial, like this is the model for how we're going to build our army to the United States. And almost immediately after, like by the late 50s, early 60s, we start seeing defense cooperation between the U.S. Army and the Department of Defense and the Mexican Army on the control of narcotics. So also like just to, you know, get the get get the historical perspective where we're going like they have been using a militarized approach to prohibition in Mexico for like 70 years and look where we are, right? Like this is clearly not working and I'm using air quotes here because it's like 100,000 plus overdoses last year in the United States. This is not good policy. 112,000 people disappeared in Mexico, 500,000 homicides in the last 15 years. Come on. Clearly, this is not working. But again, seeing that the motivations for this kind of policy are otherwise. And it really has to do with social control. Um, Coming to migration, things are so bad right now in Mexico. You know, I did a piece for Truth Dig um, a couple months ago, and I followed a couple of different migrant families who were traveling up through Mexico, people who are trying to do everything as legal as possible. Um, Mexico introduced a visa, for example, for Venezuelans in in January. Uh, Mexico is hardening its own borders all the time in response to U.S. pressure. So I was, you know, I was interviewing Venezuelans who crossed into Chiapas and they waited and they got this thing called the Salvo Conducto, which is a special permission given by the institution, the Migration Institute of Mexico, to transit through Mexico. 
So they're tra- they're allowed to take buses, they're allowed to travel with dignity through the country to the north border, and then they would turn themselves into the United States. And what was happening was that they were being detained and turned around and put in jail and threatened and worse by migration officials in the north of Mexico. Not migration officials, but um, National Guard, um, local state police, local police, etc. So even though they have this permission slip that says we're allowed to travel through Mexico, we are asylum seekers, they are being turned around by Mexican officials working. I mean, Chihuahua State, for example, has signed an agreement directly with Jeff Abbott of Texas, basically saying, we'll turn them all around. Don't worry, governor, you know? So there's there's a lot of pressure from a lot of different places. One of the things I found most interesting while reporting that story is is this notion that instead of responding piecemeal to Trump's demands, instead of doing little things here and there, Mexico made completely new policies that are permanent. And I think the biggest example of that is is the use of the National Guard, which again is a military force, to police migration, which previously wasn't, wasn't the case at all. So, you know, Mexico doesn't have the luxury of being separate and and being independent from the United States, um, especially around security and and migration policies. So, you know, there's an extent to which we can blame the U.S. for everything, but also we've seen um, in this administration as well, really aggressively, you know, with gusto taking on this role of we will police and prevent migrants by any means necessary in order to have a good relationship with our northern neighbor, right? Like the Title 42, the fact that Mexico is agreeing to this with a supposedly leftist president over and over again, Title 42 is, you know, should is not legal. It's international law says people have the right to seek asylum. And yet Mexico saying, well, I guess these third national, third nation people can come back and, and we'll just keep them in Mexico. They can just stay here. In what conditions? People are living, thousands of people are living on the streets in Juarez, um, in Tijuana, just on this, there's nothing. There's not even counts. And they're super exposed. And then, you know, a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago, we had this fire in Juarez, which I don't know if you guys have talked about, but, you know, 30 men were killed inside a detention center run by the National Migration Institute. And I've read a piece yesterday that said that basically there were orders from the top to just not open that door to leave those men in there, to let them burn to death. So there's this real cruelty also within Mexico and, and a growing you know, xenophobia. And I just actually reported a piece about this with activists in Juarez who are freaking out because they're saying, you know, Juarez historically has been really friendly towards migrants because most people who live in Juarez are migrants that have moved to that city for work from other places in Mexico. And just in the past couple of years, there's just been this drumbeat of xenophobia of these these migrants aren't good migrants. These migrants aren't like us when we go to the United States. These migrants don't want to work. These migrants are criminal inside of what is. So again, really concerning kind of developments in, in migration policy in Mexico um, and definitely in response to U.S. pressure. Let's get back uh, to, to the work you're doing now. Could you talk a little bit about feminist responses to the escalation of the drug war and, and take that in whatever direction you would like? 
Yes, I mean, thank God for feminism, right? If it wasn't for the incredible, uh, profound organizing and mobilizing um, that women and non-binary and trans folks are doing in Mexico right now, things would feel a lot bleaker. I was in the streets on March 8th. I was in Mexico City. I wrote a piece on Ojalá, um, International Women's Day in Mexico City, and it was incredible. There was over 100,000 women in the streets. And, you know, it just has the feel of such an autonomous protest. Obviously, people are organized into affinity groups and collectives who are marching together, but everyone's got like their own sign, their own message. Um, and a lot of that, a lot of the overall messages against violence, against macho violence, partner violence, um, violence within the church, violence within schools, within the other institutions that, that women are participating in. Um, but also st like state violence, like straight, like, you know, s straight state violence. So yeah, March 8th was really, really powerful. And it's like, it's like almost like a day to like really recharge um, our batteries. But it's a big reflection of ongoing organizing throughout the year. Um, one of the things that's really interesting about March 8th is right now, I don't, I don't know if, if this is kind of reaching the United States or not, but the president has proposed electoral reform. Obviously, the other parties don't want it. And so there's been this sort of like face off of like dueling protests. So the president will call for his supporters to fill the Sokano one day. And then the opposition, the right wing opposition will, you know, call for their supporters to do the same two weeks later. And there's been like a couple of these series of like fill the Sokano protests. And what's so interesting about Women's Day is it's much more autonomous, but also people go to the Zocalo in their own cities. So it's not like everyone's concentrating in Mexico City. You see people in Tijuana, in Mexicali, in the in you know the smallest towns in Guanajuato, in Chiapas, in Yucatan, all over the place. Women in their own environments are going and taking the streets. And even that, even considering that, there was more of us in the Socalo on March eighth um, than there was, you know, than there has been in these other kind of protests being convened from from spaces of power. Um, March 8th is a big day. There's there's like a lot of other days through the year. There's a lot of stuff that's constantly ongoing of the weekend. There was protests because of the disappearance of a um, young woman who's a rapper in Mexico State. There's just constantly things happening locally um, where women are taking the streets and pressuring authorities. Because what we've learned about like enforced disappearance and, you know, detentions of activists is that and and femicides as well in terms of getting justice or attempting to get justice is that you need to have a rapid really public direct action response to these kinds of violence otherwise nothing happens nothing happens like i did a i did an interview recently with a woman whose son was disappeared a few years ago and she said for one year she just you know went by herself and looked and up and down the hills and tried to find him and then just realized oh my god like a year can pass Someone can disappear, a year can pass, and nothing happens. So she formed a collective. And, you know, she, her collective marches on Mar March 8th, right? Like, it's also, there's a lot of connection between struggles led by women on March 8th and, and throughout the year, feminist groups supporting family members of the disappeared, and often feminist groups having within their own networks people who've been disappeared. So this sort of overlapping context of violence that is impacting all of us. And, you know, it doesn't need to be a woman who has disappeared or murdered for a woman to be impacted. Women are impacted when men are disappeared and murdered as well, right? So there's a huge amount of anger. 
there's a huge amount of frustration because Lopez Obrador did come to power promising a change, promising a break with prior failed security pro- like policy. You know, it was supposed to be different and it's the same. You know, the, the homicide rates have not dropped significantly. Um, the number of disappeared continues to climb. Um, and this with a president who, who promised something different, right? So there's this growing sense that the state is not going to solve on an individual level and on a broader level, um, this problem of violence and the way that the way that we can take that on is is through collective organizing. So how have these movements come out of other movements? How do they relate to what else is going on in Mexico? Is it, it, What is the broader structure of what's happening? I mean, I think, again, it kind of relates to what, what I was just saying. I think for a long time, feminism in Mexico was was quite institutional. It was within institutions. It was sort of NGOE. Um, it was the National Institute of Women, um, you know, sort of equality feminism um, and women operating from spaces of relative privilege and comfort um, with a discourse of feminism. And I think the level of violence um, over the past 15 years, like one of the things that always gives me goosebumps, like one of the slogans that women use in Mexico is, if I don't come home, burn everything down, right? If I don't return, burn it all. And so the, the level of anger, the level of rage, the fact that a new generation you know, of teenagers have basically grown up in this Mexico um, and they are pissed. They are just outraged. So they're seeing not only abuse in schools and machismo, but just extreme violence on such a regular basis. And then just seeing that there's just no response and that institutional feminism incapable of responding really being a motor being like, F this, we got to take the streets. We got to do this ourselves. And a lot of women have been involved in the sexta, you know, supporting Zapatistas, like older women from more from my generation that has been, you know, deeply politicizing the Zapatista uprising for people, you know, in their late thirties and above, um, and continues to be a reference point, obviously indigenous struggle, um, indigenous struggles, I should say all around the country, and then the women, also the the primarily women-led search groups mobilizing around disappearance is another huge one. But yeah, there's there's a lot of organizing happening in Mexico, even though the context for organizing is it's terrifying. How have authorities responded? How have the armed groups responded to this organizing? How is this in, embedded in Mexican society more broadly? So in, in terms of feminism, I mean, things really vary a lot in Mexico from place to place. Um, Mexico City is a really different world from rural Sonora, right? You could almost think it's two different countries. Um, And we do have, you know, uh, events on record of armed groups uh, interfering in and in fact even killing uh, feminists who are mobilizing I'm hoping to publish something soon about a case in Guaymas on on November 25th, the the day to end all violence against women. The Marines, uh, soldiers, and municipal police were involved in a firefight directly in front of a feminist mobilization and and killed a young woman named Marisol Cuadras. There were grenades flying. Right now, that's something that we couldn't imagine happening in Mexico City, um, but it happened in Guaymas, right? So 
there it really depends on, on the context. And I mean, the other thing about the Guaymas killing was that the demonstration, there were literally like two dozen women there, right? So it's it's not like it's it's always massive everywhere. It's not like it's a hundred thousand women in every city. People are still going out even in much smaller numbers, and 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 that's often where people are facing the most the most violence, the most intense kind of state violence. In Mexico City this year, as far as I know, as far as we've been able to track, there was no arrests. Um, and I think that, again, this is related to the fact that the current mayor of Mexico City is positioning herself as a feminist, and she is the president's favored candidate to become the next president of Mexico, right? So she can't be seen um, throwing feminists in jail and so on. But in Monterrey, for example, the city of Monterrey, you had over a dozen people uh, jailed, uh, they were just picked up at, at the end of the of the March 8th march and, and put in jail. There is all kinds of repression against um, feminist movements, especially in outside of Mexico City. Has there been social mobilization in favor of this, these new types of organizing in the last 15 years? Has there been a societal response or are these social movements viewed as beyond the pale? What has been the broader um, response to what's been going on? I mean, I think that's a really interesting question. I would say in terms of feminism, it's like, it's really, really interesting because women are just like, yes, you know, like they try to say, oh, this, this woman, she spray painted and she broke a window. And the response here is we all did it. You know, I'm a 70 year old woman, never marched, but I did that too. Cause that's, because we understand how upset people are, right? And same with the movements around disappeared. I mean, it's, you think of the Madre de Plaza de Mayo, you think of Tita Radilla, who's a historic reference point, who's been searching uh, for her father for like 40 years, who was disappeared in the context of, of uh, the Cold War, the Dirty War in Guerrero. These are women searching for their children, right? Like there is just like a moral kind of, it's, really hard to imagine taking a position against that, even as a liberal, certainly as a leftist, right? And I think one of the things, though, that has complicated this is the election of, of Andres Manuel López Obrador, the arrival of the Morena Party to power. It's the first time we've seen self-identified leftists go out and protest against family members of the disappeared, saying that their actions are undermining the president's ability to govern. The president regularly calls feminists conservatives, wealthy, upper class, that don't represent Mexican women. So there's this, there is more of a fracturing in the left right now in Mexico because we have a progressive president who basically anyone who protests against him is accused of being a right-wing operative. And that includes family members of the disappeared. And that includes feminists who are protesting femicide. And, you know, this president is still enjoying polling upwards of 60% support. So there is something in the air that's changing in terms of how much support these movements are getting. I would, I would say, like, if the right wing was in power, we'd see a lot more support, for sure, for these movements. And because the left is in power, and this is something we've seen Throughout the hemisphere, it's so-called pink tide. The left is divided around whether to support these movements or not, because a lot of people feel more loyalty with the president's project 
than they do with with these really powerful struggles for justice. What does that suggest about AMLO and the quote-unquote left in Mexico? Oh my goodness. This is like... So I would say it suggests that AMLO is not a leftist anymore. Um, I think he was for a long time, and people will say over and over again, he was amazing in opposition, um, but in power, not amazing. You know, he's he's been enthusiastically promoting militarization as basically the the cure for all of Mexico's ills, right? Why? What does this suggest, right? If, if we're not going to make it sort of the rise and fall of the individual, which mm-hmm. we don't, what are, what are the structural forces operating here, pushing AMLO toward militarization? That's like a good question. And I think it's one of the ones we might never have like a solid answer to in the sense that so much that has to do with national defense is just... We just can't know how these decisions are taken. But um, my comrades and I here have been kind of developing an analysis that suggests that AMLO decided to make an agreement to pactar, to make a pact with the military very early in his administration before taking office, because it guarantees that he will be able to execute his plans and his political vision and what he's calling the fourth transformation. So Mexico does not have a large middle class supporting his project. Um, He was elected with a huge margin, right? Like a record margin ever since democracy in Mexico, you know, beginning 1997, Vicente Fox 2000, no party has enjoyed this type of majority um, in Congress and Senate, et cetera, that AMLO has. But it seems like the decision was like, yeah, okay, I'm going to work with the army. The army is the people in uniform. This isn't just something that AMLO says. This is something that presidents have said. Historically, the army in Mexico is historically loyal to the president above all else. So it's really deciding, walking back any kind of discourse around demilitarizing the drug war, around sending the military back to their cartels and, and not using the military to police the country, walking back all of that discourse that was, you know, conveniently used during the campaign to instead increase military power as a way of of guaranteeing the longevity of his political project. Don, where would you say we stand? Not, not me. I don't know why I said that. Where do you say Mexican feminism stands in 2023? I, I think you gave a bit of a sense of it is that it, it, with the left in power, oftentimes these sorts of movements throughout the, the world are, are become less meaningful because people think the left in power, et cetera, et cetera. So what do you see as, as the, 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 um, place of the movement in society? Where does the movement stand? And what needs to be done? And maybe you could use this to transition to your own work with Ohala and what you see your project as being. I love the what needs to be done question. Ah, just kidding. Um, (laughs) I think Mexican feminism is incredibly powerful. I think we all know that many of these systems and institutions uh, are rotten. I did my PhD in Mexico and the level of um, not just machismo within the institution, but the level of non-consensual touching by male professors, et cetera. Like, it's rank. 
and we all know it, right? And so I think one of the things that's interesting is 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 really just this move where we're saying we're not accepting this anymore. We're not organizing with you because it's the left as well. We're doing our own thing, and this is really powerful. Like the 2023 march was the biggest march in history on March 8th, not only in Mexico City, but I talked to women in seven or eight cities around the country. In every place that I talked to, like, this is the biggest march. So there is a sort of support from growing the movement, making the movement more mainstream, and think, think, I mean, how exciting is it thinking of, like, a 16-year-old or on the metro going to their first ever demonstration? You know, she made her sign at home. She's going to go protest. And she shows up and there's a hundred thousand women there. How powerful that is, right? In terms of like the next generation that's coming and what they're being exposed to in terms of collective action and in terms of fight back. So it's exciting. The conditions are super difficult. Next year's an election year here. Um, the militarization is really intense. Uh, and so there is like a lot of Danger of the stakes are really high. People get really scared. People go into hiding. People have to leave the country. This is happening all the time. People putting a lot of resources and energy into this failed justice system because there's nowhere else to go. And same with communities organizing to defend their land, just investing a ton of time and resources into the court system because they have to. Because legally, you know, they have title they have rights, but the, 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 you know, the corruption and the way the system is set up. But it's like that's, those are the mechanisms that exist along with the reps action. Ohana is a new project. It's ohana.mx. And basically we want to do something different. I spent a lot of years complaining about how people in the U.S. really don't understand Mexico and social movements um, in the South, especially if they're not from like diaspora communities. And after a while, I got sick of hearing myself complaining and also just realized like there is no place to just have that solid. Here's what the movements are saying. Here's what these organizers are saying. Here's what's happening on the ground perspective in English. Um, it doesn't really exist a lot of the time, Right. A big example of that is the political crisis in Bolivia in 2019. Um, some people call it a coup. Some people call it otherwise. But it was, whoa, you know, it was one of those moments where it was really hard to read the Bolivian left on what was happening inside their country in English. Almost non-existent perspectives. In fact, you've had a lot more gringo historians kind of explaining over them what was taking place in their own context. And I have my own whole backstory with that. But basically out of that frustration and this sort of sense that in the U.S. media on the left, you're not allowed to be critical of Venezuela, you're not allowed to be critical of Nicaragua, which is unbelievable, right? Because Nicaragua is really the worst case scenario right now in terms of what the left in power looks like. And also the fact that a lot of times in these discussions, these, you know, macro political, geopolitical discussions, it ends up being like dudes who don't see feminism. They don't understand. They don't realize that we right now are representing the largest force in the streets and one of the most powerful kinds of social organization that's taking place. They can't see it or they don't want to see it. So it's feminism doesn't even enter into the equation or they see us as a sector. Right. And so what we're trying to do from Ojalá is say, like, women are not a sector. 
we can talk about geopolitics. We can have political analysis. We do. We're also in the streets. We're doing support work, direct action, all this kind of stuff. So really trying to give a space this. It's bilingual. Um, so we have <clears throat> folks, most of our content is originally written in Spanish, and then we're trying to do as much as we can to translate it to English. We're tiny. There's like three of us. We have no money. We are just starting. Um, but hopefully what we decided was to soft launch our own March 8th, because it is kind of like our compass. What happens on March 8th is really going to determine what the next year looks like. Um, and just start building into hopefully independent media, feminist, bilingual, with some staying power. Don Marie Paley, thank you so much. Uh, everyone will have links in the show notes for everything Don just spoke about. Uh, and, and Don, we hope to have you back soon. Thanks again. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.